Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro. Hi, everybody. Welcome back for another edition of the Business Integrity School. And today we are very lucky to have with us Eugene Soltis, who is the Jakursky Family Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. Welcome, Eugene. Thanks, Cindy. Pleasure to join. Glad to have you here. Eugene focuses um, on how individuals and organizations confront and overcome challenging situations. In fact, he's written a really interesting book called Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of a White Collar Criminal, which was described by Kirkus Reviews as a groundbreaking study on white collar criminality. And the book explores why often wealthy and successful executives engage in deception. And we're going to get into that a little bit more in this podcast. Um, Professor Soltis and his work have been widely quoted by the media, including in the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Bloomberg, USA Today, and other publications. Professor Soltis also teaches in several of the school's executive education programs and was awarded the Charles M. Williams Award for Outstanding Teaching. Prior to joining Harvard Business School faculty, Professor Soltis received his PhD and MBA from the University of Chicago, Booth School of Business, and his AM in Statistics and AB in Economics from Harvard University. Quite an impressive resume, and we are super excited to have you here today. So how are you doing in this period of time, and how are things in uh, Cambridge? Uh, we're, we're progressing along with teaching. Uh, actually, most of the students are on campus, but we are still primarily remote, but uh, have a, I'll say this year, an extraordinary group of students who I think we're, we're looking for something a little bit different because of all the uncertainty that they're facing. Uh, yeah. So it's a... Uh, Pleasure to join join there, but uh, it, it's complicated. I think uh, as we're all facing complicated. Yeah, yeah, we're in the same situation. Almost all students are on campus, but it's sort of a hybrid and trying to figure it all out, and it is very complicated. But fortunately for Zoom, we're able to still get together and and do things like this. So. Yeah. So we're in the middle of talking about um, business ethics and the future of business ethics and and um, kind of where it is today and where it needs to be in the future. And as a reference point, I started this idea after I read Andrew Stark's article that still is uh, kind of widely cited in popular media about what's wrong with business ethics. It was in the Harvard Business Review, and it's from 25 years ago. And at the time, um, he talked about the fact that business ethics was being taught in business schools in a way that was too general and too philosophical and theoretical, and it didn't really seem to be of much use. It seems to me that we've done an awful lot in the field since then, and um, time to bring that article current and actually to talk about what's ethics 3.0 look like if that was ethics 1.0 and this is ethics 2.0 what's ethics 3.0 look like so first just let me ask you what do you think about uh, professor stark's observations and do you think that they're still relevant at all today luckily i think like you i'm an optimist and we have made i think considerable progress Uh, i mean when we do case studies when we we're not talking philosophy in business schools anymore of course we'll introduce utilitarian and and various other ways of thinking but we're doing case studies that are actually about real life situations that real managers face in the day-to-day course of their work um and i i that's that's moving from philosophy to really really applied applied ethics that said, I don't think everything has been fixed, so I'll, I'll do the, the glass is still half empty in some way. Um, 
And that is that there's not one person, I think, whether we're talking a business school student or frankly, someone in a, in a company doing a corporate training exercise that thinks when they're doing it on a, an insider trading or embezzlement or, or fraud, that they're going to do that, um, you know, six months or a year, five years down the road. It still feels very, I think, abstract. And right. I think for students in the classroom, um, I mean, we identify the situation in a case study. They're going to spend a half an hour or maybe even an hour discussing it. And they're also going to do in a, a setting in which there's people, dozens of people with different views and opinions. Mm-hmm. The hard part is in real life, generally those three conditions all, all don't exist. People have to make them quickly, oftentimes alone or with like-minded people. And no one isolates that decision from the hundreds of other business decisions that they're right. making. Right. Um, as a result, that's the challenge of how do we get students and, and business professionals to appreciate that actually this does happen to them. I mean, the bribe, no one thinks they're going to pay a bribe, but I mean, we can just pay attention. That's one of the, the areas, you know, FCPA widely enforced. And many of these are great managers. Um, right. Fraud, similarly, um, great thoughtful managers who've had a lot of success. And then we see, you know, people, let's say senior managers from McKinsey, uh, extraordinary individuals engaging in insider trading. Right. Um, and I think right. that disconnect is something we're still really struggling with. How do we bridge that divide? Yeah. How do we bridge that divide and, and bring in more of the social scientists to help understand why do people, you know, engage in that kind of behavior, which we'll get into here in a minute with your book. Um, but first, let me ask you about um, something you just mentioned, real life cases and what, you know, situations that, that managers are actually facing. And you wrote a really interesting um, case study for uh, Harvard Business um, Review in a, in a case study actually about ABM Bev um, with my friend Matt Galvin, <laughs> former Georgetown Law School alum, um, and the work that they had done on project I think they called it Brewright, and um, how they were using data analytics and bringing a, a lot of information together. I think really to help advance the program. But tell me a little bit about that particular situation and what you found most. Um, I'd say ad, the, the biggest advancement you found and why it interested you so much to write a, a case study on it for um, ABM Bev. Yeah, Cindy, I think you, you nailed it. Uh, it's the, the analytics uh, standpoint. Oh. It's something, you know, to Matt's credit, I think really pushed ABM Bev program uh, ahead in. Um, really trying to think about rather than, I think a lot of compliance is still focused very much on, on process, yeah. being able to look at outcomes and using data to evaluate how to allocate those resources within the organization. You know, a large, complex multinational is naturally going to have things popping up from time to time. Um, the challenge is I see a lot of compliance programs still what I, I call peanut butter spread. So yeah. All these resources, you spread it evenly among, you know, 100, 100,000, you know, across the globe, where those risks are not, I'll say, equally uh, placed. And I think what, what MAD and AB InBev's program is trying to do is really go to the next level and say, given all the data that we actually have, we can bring that together to try to understand where we should be pointing our, our efforts when it comes to proactive risk mitigation, uh, when it comes to monitoring and surveillance. Um, we can use data to help us understand that. Yeah, I thought it was really a very interesting advancement, particularly given that they're not a like a the, you know, a Silicon Valley data company. I mean, they're like the world's largest brewery, but yeah, they were they were doing it, and and I think that was um, actually at the time they were doing it, it was quite revolutionary uh, for a global company to be that um, that broad and how they were pulling together the different data streams. So it was it was quite an advancement. Especially outside, as you point out, I mean, outside financials, which, you know, have budgets that kind of can dwarf others when it comes to 
trying different things. And uh, right. they, were, they were an early move, mover. And I think it's one of the areas that I think is especially exciting to see firms in different ways uh, start approaching, you know, I would say compliance and cultural analytics to try to get ahead uh, yeah. of potential issues. You know, at the end of the case study, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that um, ABM Bev said the future for them, they thought, and for ethics would be going further into sort of the behavioral sciences, um, as well as further into data analytics, knowing that they had really just started. Um, that, I think, is a great segue into um, the book and one of your interests, which is behavioral science and, and why people do the things they do. Um, and you actually wrote the book called Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of White Collar Criminals, and talked to, I don't know, I think it was like, what, 50 different senior-level executives that had ended up finding themselves in a big mess? And, and I'll say, oddly, the book it seems to have become quite popular among people who have unfortunately face similar situations. So probably the sample yeah. has gone up quite a bit since, um, <laughs> unexpectedly, uh, since then. Well, tell us a little bit about that book and what, what some of your findings were in there. I was really motivated by, I think, the same question that many people ask when they see, you know, another successful manager or leader uh, get into trouble, uh, something that doesn't seem to align with all the success they uh, had uh, previously. And so I took a very kind of a, I'll say, uh, curious approach, which is I want to see the world through their eyes and understand a little bit what they were thinking. So that's what motivated me to reach out and spend time with them. Um, Ultimately, what I effectively argue in the book and the, the thesis is that, you know, while judges and prosecutors, and I would say we see in the media, oftentimes depict uh, criminal decisions, especially white-collar crime, is this rational cost-benefit calculation uh-huh. co- benefits against the expected costs. What, what I really describe in the book is much more um, not a failure of reasoning, but really a failure of intuition, that managers mm-hmm. don't necessarily feel what they're doing is all that harmful. Um, and I'll say easy examples when you think of the distance, both uh, psychological and physical between, you know, the manager and the victim, which is, you know, that could be the investor and, and others. Um, they're just far apart. They're separated. Um, so take something like insider trading. Um, you can't even identify the victim. We say it's the integrity of the market. So it doesn't really immediately resonate in one's gut. There's also right. a, a psychological, uh, I would say, a, really a timing offset. Because at the time, let's say we're at COVID time, so a lot of firms are struggling now. You right. do, let's say, a sleight of hand to help boost the, the firm. Let's right. say a little channel stuffing, a little fraud, you know, one of the many, many options. Um, what do you see? You think you're helping out your colleagues? Let's keep the job, uh, their uh-huh. job a little longer. The investors, we don't need our stock to go down now. And once COVID's done, this is all going to come back and things will be back to normal. So this is just a temporary situation. Right, uh, right. We're going to hear that word temporary situation, I know, shortly, too, in a different <laughs> context. But, but I'll say that goes a long way to rationalization. And you see good people and good managers doing things yeah. that are normally consequential. Um, yeah. But it's, we don't naturally, in our gut, I think as humans, uh, we weren't built to run corporations that span the globe. And you can influence people in a second that are thousands of miles away. Um, but that's what we've created now with, uh, you know, the modern corporation. Yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. It's it, it is what you described. I mean, it's like so, particularly in a time of COVID, if you know a company's hurting a bit and you pull sales forward for a quarter, it's like okay, well, I'm not necessarily benefiting personally from that. I'm not getting money in my pocket, and really, what I'm doing is I'm just trying to help the company, and it's just temporary. And we'll go back and you know fix it, and and so good people can make small missteps and rationalize it as like you said, it's like well, who's really getting hurt? Because it doesn't hit you in the gut that anybody's really getting hurt. So yeah. 
that makes a lot of sense. Double pudging, an interesting one now. Uh, double pudging collateral, something I've heard, you know, from former students. It, it, this is an area where you're you're at a hard time now, and yeah. you don't have enough collateral. You need additional funding, and so uh, pledging collateral to multiple sources, something obviously fraudulent that is illegal. But if you don't think you're ever going to, the bank's never going to collect on that collateral. Naturally, you can quite. Uh, easy, I think, convince yourself it doesn't matter. Uh, who cares? Right. If I cl- and if I don't get the additional loan, um, the business will go under and real people will be harmed. And so I, I guess I've spent a lot of time pondering how easy it would be with a bit of pressure uh, to fall in that trap. So in your book, back to the book, one of the individuals that you talk about in the book is Bernie Madoff, who's the renowned stockbroker turned fraudster, serving 150 years in prison now for like the largest Ponzi scheme ever. And um, you, I thought was quite interesting, actually called him up and talked to him in prison several times um, to just kind of- clarify, he, he called, had to call me, Colette. Ah, um, okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> you had conversations with him while he was in prison and they had to be in like 15 minute chunks because that was all the amount of time they had, uh, which I just thought was, was quite interesting that, uh, that you were able to have that kind of conversation with him. But um, he really shared something I thought was interesting about- why he did it. Because you asked him kind of, why did you do it? And what would you say to students? Would it be okay with you if we play just a bit of that, that tape when he shared with you why he did it? Of course, of course. Okay. Let me get that queued up here. Just one sec. Here we go. This is Bernie Madoff. I guess like sort of starting from scratch type of entrepreneurial type of enterprise where, uh, you know, you start out, not exactly, at least in my part, not exactly sure what I wanted to do in life other than be a success. And then, you know, because of the, you know, my beginnings and because I was been in a business where, uh, you know, I was, it was sort of a business that was hard to break into in a sense that it was, there was already, it was controlled pretty much by, you know, the establishment. Uh, and I clearly was an outsider of that establishment, not coming from, you know, money or not certainly coming from even a connected family. Uh, and, you know, just being able to sort of succeed in that. And then, you know, all, you know, all of a sudden having, you know, you know, a mindset where you feel you can almost accomplish, you know, anything. And, you know, you, you, you build, I built my confidence up to a level where I sort of, you know, felt that, you know, there was nothing that, you know, I couldn't attain. And it became like a challenge for me to sort of uh, go up against the establishment and try and break into the business. And, because of the success I had and because I was sort of always going up against sort of difficult odds, uh, I probably didn't think long and hard enough uh, about some of the things that I did, uh, like you know, getting into the problem where I started to uh, sort of come, go off the tracks and uh, I was able to convince myself that this was, you know, a temporary situation, and because of all my success, I sort of uh, was going to be able to, you know, continue to do that, and probably, you know, just didn't give it enough thought or wasn't frightened enough, you know, to uh, 
to say to myself, I can't, you know, I can't do this. I can't take the risk or I shouldn't be taking the risk. Uh, because uh, clearly I didn't give enough thought to, to that. Uh, you know, I, you know, in hindsight, I, when I look back, uh, it wasn't as if, uh, you know, I couldn't have said no. You know, it wasn't like I was being blackmailed, uh, you know, into doing something or I was afraid, uh, you know, even afraid of sort of getting getting caught doing it. I sort of, you know, I sort of rationalized that what I was doing was okay. You know, it wasn't going to hurt anybody. It was a temporary thing. And because of the success that I've had and the money I made for people, I sort of felt, you know, that it would just sort of be a, you know, a temporary situation and acceptable. Uh, wow. So he, he said three times in three minutes that he thought it was just and rationalized it in his mind as just a temporary thing. Right, which obviously his mistakes, you know, dwarf all others. But I think, you know, in the, you know, I spoke with him basically every Wednesday night for three years. So that's obviously a very small chunk, but I'll say particularly unusual, I think reflective. One of the times he became especially reflective on his conduct. Um, And I think that temporary is something that we can all resonate with, with any error that's being made. Most of us think it wouldn't continue going on. Frankly, giving him the credit that he would have come up with like a 10 plus billion dollar Ponzi scheme, (laughs) giving him too much credit. Um, He didn't think that that would last or that would be created. Right. Um, I think the point he did make that I'll say I think about is the, it's so simple, but I just never gave it enough thought. Um, I mean, there's something so simple, but powerful about that, that he, he deliberately isolated himself from everyone else that could be providing that, what I call uncomfortable dissonance. Um, You know, his, his spouse, his sons, those co-workers, they all enabled him rather than pushed back. And, you know, one of the things I explored near the end of my book is what you find is when, People are going down a wrong kind of route. It's the people that are close to them that they respect. Sometimes this is a family member. Sometimes this is a colleague that can intercede and kind of stop that from going kind of off the the, uh, the tracks. And with with um, Madoff, unfortunately, created almost the exact opposite environment. Um, everyone enabled it rather than um, anyone was there to, to stop it. And I think that's why ultimately it became such a tragedy. Yeah, and maybe that's why it became the largest Ponzi scheme in history is because he just had all enablers. And to your point, he didn't have anyone who was kind of pulling him back on the tracks in the right way. Wow, really interesting. Three years worth of 15-minute conversations that uh, once a week. (laughs) And a whole pile of letters. Uh, Yeah, it was my Wednesday night in my office calling, calling, collect. Um, But, you know, what's so amazing is that, you know, and, and tragic is that, you know, yeah. we actually look back in the 70s and 80s, his firm, a lot of things we take for granted now, decimalization, electronic trading, uh, you know, off-market exchange trading. Yeah. Those were innovations his firm led. Um, and so in a wow. different world, we could see him as this respected kind of, I'll say, grandfather figure in the market rather than being you know, the biggest villain uh, ever. And and that's a tragedy uh, for, for, you know, all his investors, you know, those employees, um, so much. 
Yeah, it's a huge tragedy. And I think because of that, companies are really interested on in how can they find where they may have lapses in their own companies just as early as possible, right? So that they can try to address them. And you did some research on that and wrote um, another, I thought, very interesting article recently in the Harvard Business Review about that, talking about where's your company most prone to lapses in integrity. And I thought your advice uh, on how companies could figure out where their lapses were was just spot on. Could you just talk about what your article uh, found for a few minutes? Yeah, so one of the things we're really trying to focus on, exactly as you point out, is how do we understand, you could say, where the hot spots are? And in particular, where are the, the, the part of the iceberg that's below the surface? Right. Like most firms are looking at substantiated violations from investigations and their helpline. Um, but there's obviously a lot of stuff that doesn't bubble up to the top. Um, mm-hmm. The best way of getting there, I'll say one of the only ways is you, you ask. Um, and so what we described in the article is, is asking some simple questions. You know, did you see misconduct in the last quarter of a, group, a, a selection of types? Um, if so, did you report it? Mm-hmm. If not, why not? Mm-hmm. And from that, you now get to characterize, you know, with some basic metadata. So preserve anonymity, but knowing location and perhaps seniority you start to get a sense of where are there issues that we probably don't see through our helpline, our analytics don't see, but people are concerned about it and it's trending in a, in a direction. And mm-hmm. uh, even maybe more so than the questions, one of the things that we work with our collaborators on is actually, I would say, increasing the frequency. I mean, a lot of amazing firms will do, for example, an annual or even biannual mm-hmm. uh, cultural survey when you mm-hmm. ask similar questions to those and maybe others. But I've viewed that that's kind of like a, if your CFO only got to have the balance sheet of the firm once a year. Right. Uh, it's better than none, but like no CFO only wants to see, you know, liabilities once a year. Uh, right. You want to see it more regularly. And so yes. what we propose is rather than asking, you know, if your firm has 10,000 people, all 10,000 to try to fill out the survey once a year, you can break it up with a little mm-hmm. little statistical, some statistical tricks with stratification and randomization. Give it out to, you know, 750 people every month mm-hmm. or 2,500 people a quarter. Now you have data points. Exactly. And once you have two data points, the third data point, you know, is it trending upwards or downwards? And so you get to use your own firm as a control rather than try to the apples and oranges because there's no two firms, even the same industry that have the same culture to compare yeah. my firm versus another firm. So yeah. that's, I actually see where, you know, we're not talking really fancy or sexy predictive data analytics or machine learning, but we're talking about a subtle change to how the data is collected in the frequency, which now allows you to draw some pretty sophisticated inferences about uh, potential hotspots. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really great idea. And doing it more frequently with smaller groups is it it also just gives you more real-time information. It's like you said, I mean, you can't just look at a balance sheet once a year, which is essentially, which most companies do when they do their culture surveys. So, yeah. And it's also, I mean, cultural uh, survey fatigue is real. <laughs> and so it is. giving it to everyone 12 times a year or even four times a year is, is not going to make you any friends. Uh, yeah, no, so. no friends at all. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, that's why a lot of companies end up with very few questions and only, you know, once a year or every so often. But if you break it up and do almost poll surveys, you know, just for smaller groups, it, it can be a little more... Um, uh, understandable and it can be a little more acceptable, I think. And employees would only be getting it once a year from their standpoint. They only are doing it once a year. It's just, you've done it in a way that people are doing it different times, which allows you to draw that inferences about the whole population. So um, I'm excited with some of the firms that, you know, we're working with to try to just start this and see how that allows uh, insights to be gained a bit quicker. 
Yeah, super smart. So, Eugene, if I were to ask you for your vision of the future for business ethics for the next 25 years, what do you think would be the best kind of three words or phrases to describe where you think we need to go in the future? So I, I, you're giving me three words, but I'm going to emphasize one word three times. Uh, okay. Um, measurement, measurement, measurement. <laughs> uh, it, it's the area that it, when I first started uh, a number of years ago, you know, four years ago, really digging into, I would say, corporate compliance and integrity programs. Uh-huh. The first thing that surprised me was, I would say, the amount of resource, time, and effort that, that's spent but without a real great understanding of what you're getting in return. Right. Um, it, I'll say, it, uh, it reminded me, one of the first thing I saw is when I watched Mad Men, a show I loved, uh, about when like the marketing person would come in in a fancy suit and tell you about this great marketing campaign they're going to do, and they sell it to you, and then four months later, they came back and told you how fantastic it was. Right. Um, there was no data, there was no knowledge, but you, you kind of believed it worked. Um, Marketing is now a hugely sophisticated, <laughs> hugely analytical field. Right, it but is. But compliance isn't so far off from, I think, the Mad Men view of, of marketing circa 1950. Um, we, we put out you know, training, we put out processes, we put out codes, uh-huh. but we don't really know um, who's consuming and how. And in fact, those who do speak up and say, I love what you've done with this training, I love the revised code of conduct, they're actually almost the worst audience to get that feedback from because they're, they're your b- true believers. Right. You want the per- the people you never hear from that are trying to ignore it. And so, you know, what a lot of the work we're, we're doing now is really focused on is how can we, with data, uh, create more rigorous ways for organizations to measure what is and is not working and then be able to adjust uh, their program in response. Yeah, um, that but is I, I so think, important. Uh, with the DOJ's, you know, updated evaluation. Right. And I think just the momentum of the field and the, the individuals who are, you know, coming online, who are both attorneys, psychologists, people that are data scientists. Um, I think that's momentum when I, when I hear your 3.0, that's what, what I hope <laughs> 20 years, 25 years from uh, uh, now, we'll look back and say, you know, look at what we were doing now and, and look how far we've come. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. So, you know, coming from theoretical, philosophical to true case analysis and how would you resolve a situation to now here's all the measurement for how we actually, you know, achieved results. That would be fantastic. And I agree it's going to be needed and required. This has been a fantastic conversation and thanks for letting us play that clip and actually hear from Bernie Madoff in one of your Wednesday night uh, uh, conversations. That was great. But let me end on a fun question uh, or two for you. Given that we're all spending a lot of time inside and reading and watching different things and trying to lighten the mood a bit, what have you been reading or watching or listening to as of late for fun, but that also has a really cool kind of ethical dimension to it? Yeah, I think everything I do is fun. I don't know if it's light because it relates to all serious issues. Um, but I'll say from a, a book that I read over the summer. Uh, so I'm not a sports guy by any means, but but actually I was highly recommend to read Shoe Dog, uh, Phil Knight's biography. Uh, and I'll say it's an extraordinary biography. I mean, you learn about you know his business and how he built this you know from this funny name Blue Ribbon to you know the global firm that we think of as Nike. Yeah. What I really enjoyed about the book is. You know, you know, entrepreneurs when they're starting up a firm, they're it's rough and tumble. They're they're not mm. always doing things what I would call, you know, let's just say uh, compliance uh, policy one hundred and one. Let's just say they're sure. they're going with it how it goes. And uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, once you've made it to you know the Fortune you know fifty status, you look back and you forget 
that rough and tumble days when you weren't mm-hmm. always a global leader. And mm-hmm. in, in what Phil Knight r- describes in the book is a number of incidents. I mean, when he would effectively defrauded banks. I mean, there were several instances in which they didn't want him to do something. He did the exact opposite. And that was critical for his growth. Um, And it's something I think him describing that um, and actually reflecting that he wasn't comfortable with it at the time, but he saw the dilemma. If he didn't do this, he couldn't go ahead and he saw the opportunity. I actually think it's one of the best and most realistic cases of of seeing, I'll say, even though it's obviously written in hindsight, almost as real time, just conflict of someone that yeah. I think we quite rightfully respect and admire what he built. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I loved, I loved reading it. Um, and, and just seeing that, that struggle. That's cool. I'll have to add that to my list. What about any shows or podcasts? Have you been watching any fun Netflix shows. series or anything? I'll say one of my favorite, given more on this, is, is Billions. Uh, I mean, Billions. I, I think it's nothing short of, it. it, it's, br- it's brilliant. Um, brilliant. Uh, the last thing when I come home is my, my wife wants to hear more about anything relating to yeah. corporate integrity or fraud. Um, but she loves billions too, which is an act that they can create a show. That's not just fun to watch, but if yeah. you actually see the language in the description actually mm-hmm. manages, I think they capture a lot of the complex dynamics, obviously yeah. with a little bit of extra color in there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I do but, too. Uh, the, the show's show's amazing. Anyone that's yeah. not watching it, that is listening to your podcast is, is, is sorely missed out. And that's the first thing I recommend they start doing. <laughs> I would agree. It's a great one. (laughs) All right. Well, in there, I think there's a new season coming out of that pretty soon, hopefully, when COVID hasn't put it off of uh, the track too long. But this has been a great conversation, Eugene. Thank you so much for your time, your knowledge, your wisdom, and just sharing your thoughts with with us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. This has been a lot of fun. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome. Let's get started.